good hymns and good singing this morning. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And as you find your place in Ephesians chapter 1, we'll see if this works today. And if it doesn't, that's okay. But we're going to do our best here. Let's see what happens. It's working on mine, maybe not on yours, but it might come about. In Ephesians chapter 1, as you find your place there, I just want to thank you for the privilege that you've given to me to open the Word of God once again here at Claremont Bible Chapel. You're one of our favorite places to come, but I have to tell you, it's warmer back in North Carolina than it is here this weekend. Well, we've enjoyed the nice fellowship that has warmed our hearts in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, I'll read right through verse 14, and that will be the message today. We're looking for a phrase marker to the praise of his glory, and that's the title I'll put on this message this morning, to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1.1 in the New King James translation says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Here's our phrase marker. To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be, here's our second phrase marker, to the praise of his glory. Now verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, and our last phrase marker, to the praise of his glory. And we trust that God will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray once more together. Our Father, how thankful we are that when we open your word, we realize that we are in your presence and our hearts are open before your face. We pray, O oh Lord, that you will speak to our hearts, give us understanding in all things, and make your word live to us that we might understand not only the message, but also know by experience your power that works in us mightily. The same power that raised your son from the dead, 
We pray, Lord, that in resurrection power, that there would be new life granted to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and those of us who have already trusted him as our Savior, that we might be greatly encouraged and lifted up in our grand hope that we have in our Savior, for it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. All right, looks, looks like we got a picture behind us because whenever I read Ephesians 1, I think of a trip that Nancy and I made coming home from Africa. You know, if you work these flights just right, you can stop somewhere along the way and see some things as you travel. So on one flight coming back from Africa in 1987, we decided to go through Switzerland. I understand that that's where my mom's family came from. She was the Zimmermans. And we opened the phone book in Bern, and there's probably about 5,000 Zimmermans there. So we didn't bother calling anybody, but we did want to see some of the beautiful Alps. And we woke up that one and only day we had early that morning, and, well, it was like Claremont weather there. It's kind of like what you've been seeing around here, rainy, foggy, cloudy. And we wanted to go up high and see the Alps, and everyone tried to discourage us, and they said, don't even bother. Don't waste your money. Just stay in the hotel and eat croissants. And we said, no, this is the only day we have. And so we got on the bus and we went over to the Alps. And let me tell you what happened. We got on the cable car and we started up and we broke through the ceiling. And it was nothing but blue skies above. And we made it up to the Schiltorn and it was like seeing a whole floor of those beautiful white clouds. And there we were up in the heavenlies, and that's why I think of the book of Ephesians chapter 1, and that's what causes me to reflect on going to Switzerland and seeing all the beautiful sky. You see it every day. I know you're just bored to death with all the beauty around you, but the peaks there up on the Schiltorn, almost 10,000 feet, that doesn't mean a thing to you, does it? Huh? But to a boy from the east, that is pretty high up there. How high can you go? Well, in Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14, it really does take us up into the glory, and so we want to look and see what God has given us in the heavenly places. And that's the theme of the whole book of Ephesians. You're really going to the heights, and we see him there seated in the very highest station. I've mentioned to you those phrase markers along the way to the praise of his glory there in verse 6 to the praise of his glory again in verse 12, I believe, and to the praise of his glory again in verse 14. And it really does form like a hymn of praise. And you know with a hymn you have a few stanzas. Now these are not equal stanzas, I understand, but uh, you have three stanzas in this hymn in Ephesians 1. Uh, some of our hymns, they might have three stanzas or verses, four, five, six, seven. And we understand that each stanza will particularly follow a theme. And many times it's uh, the life of Christ, verse 1, uh, the death of Christ, verse 2, the resurrection of Christ, verse 3, the coming of Christ, verse 4. And they, they lift us, how? Up into the heavenlies to be looking for him. Now, don't get too excited. I know the temperature is warm in here, okay? And uh, you got me a little bit worried, okay? But realize that... When Christ speaks of himself up in the glory, he doesn't leave you out. And so we want to enjoy all of the blessings that he has for us in these wonderful three stanzas of the praise of his glory. The first stanza, verses 3 through 6, second, verses 7 through 12, 
And then the third stanza, verses 13 and 14, I'll help you along just to remember that along the way. Let's start with an introduction, because in verses 1 through 2, we see how this hymn of praise is introduced, first mentioning the author. As these phrases are read, they should invoke praise, and even in the introduction, we can say, it is amazing what God has done, because the author of this little letter to the believers at Philippi is none other than the Apostle Paul. He was one who was called or saved out of due time. He was public enemy number one against Christ and against his people and against the church. And God miraculously turned him around 180 degrees. The Apostle Paul had a unique apostleship. He was sent specifically by special commission to bring the gospel message to the Gentiles. That's you and me, generally speaking. Though Jewish and had a burden for his Jewish people, he had a burden for the nations, for the Gentiles, that we would hear the gospel. And so God raised him up in a wonderful way, and he qualifies his position in writing this letter in verse 1 by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, catch this, by the will of God. I want to tell you, whenever you take the gospel message to anyone, one-on-one -on -one or to a group of people like this morning or anywhere in the world, always realize that you are speaking or telling forth the oracles, the written word of God, and you have the authority of the will of God that people would hear the gospel message and put their trust in him. So Paul, the author, takes this kind of confidence in his message. Not only that, but you see the address to which it's written in verse 1 again. He writes to the saints who are in Ephesus. Many times we get used to some of the terminology that we have as Christians called saints. Other people may be a little bit doubtful on what the saint means. It simply means that God has made a difference in our lives and set us apart from everyone else in the world. He has done such a work in us that makes the difference in our life, so everywhere we go, we should be seen as different. And that's what a saint or a sanctified one means. I'd like to say that our, our conduct is always saintly, but it's not always that way, is it? And yet God sees us through his eyes of love as his people, his saints, people that are set apart for him and set apart from this world. Not only does he address it in verse 1 to the saints who are in Ephesus, specifically those believers there at Ephesus, but then he adds, and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now it's also using the same kind of terminology to say those who may not be at Ephesus, but are anywhere in the world reading this letter, those who have faith in Christ. Not saying that some Christians are faithful and some Christians are not so faithful. Rather, saying all who have faith in him are considered the faithful people of God. And so he says, I'm addressing this, in short, to all believers at Ephesus and anywhere else, even all the way over here in Southern California. Hmm? See, this is not just some letter that's written a long time ago about some people way over there. But right here, God is giving this message to you. Not only that, 
besides the audience of those in Ephesus and also those all in every place of the world, here's the greeting that he gives us. You want to know what this is, don't you? Not just the address, but here's the greeting in verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace, that was a typical greeting among the Greeks, charis. And peace, a typical greeting among the Jews, shalom. So here we have to Jews and Gentiles alike a greeting, and notice this, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think, there we see the Godhead, God the Father, God who is infinitely high, our Father who is intimately nigh, and the Lord Jesus Christ on the same level, God the Father and God the Son. Now hold on. We'll see God the Spirit by the time we get to the end of this little portion of Scripture. It's also nice to notice the order of this greeting. Grace first and then peace. Someone as well said, grace always begins the greetings because without grace, you can have no peace. Grace, what is it? Well, it's God's righteousness at Christ's expense. God and his kindness has shown us his wonderful mercy and grace so that we could have peace with God and be at peace in our lives. It's really what the world is looking for. But you can't have peace without grace. Those who like to study and notice things through the scriptures, I've just mentioned to you on a side note that while verse 2 starts with grace and peace, if you come over to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 23 and 24, he closes out the letter by speaking of peace and then grace. So he starts with grace and peace. And in chapter 6, verse 23, he says, Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all, with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. And he closes by saying, Amen. And so here we see grace and peace. That's his greeting, and we take it to our hearts. You ready for the first stanza? All right, get tuned up because we're going to sing our way through this. Just kidding. But realize that God has really put a melody in our hearts that puts us in harmony with what he has accomplished. And in that very first stanza, starting in verse 3, all the way through verse 14, the third stanza, there's one long, long, long sentence grammatically in the Greek text. You mean all these verses I read are just one sentence? I bet Paul's grammar teacher was beside herself when she read this. How long should a sentence be? You know, sometimes it's just kind of hard to find, find a place to take a breath. But realize Paul used long sentences. I counted the words in this sentence, by the way. You ready? 256 words. That is one long sentence, isn't it? Uh, not only that, but the problem is keeping the attention, because our attention span runs out, they tell me, with average sentences today between 10 and 20 words in length. What happened to evolution where we're getting better and better? 
I think we're dumbing down in this age. What do you think? In fact, not only do we see the average sentence in our day and time just being between 10 and 20 words, analysts, whoever they are, believe that in a sentence of just 14 words, the comprehension, reading comprehension is 90%. But if you go up to over 40 words, the comprehension goes down to 10%. And am I going to talk to you about 256 words? Well, Nancy and I, when we were in Africa, we had a visit from one of the editors to Time magazine, Marguerite Michaels. She was responsible for the Central Band of Africa, 12 nations there. And she told us that the average sentence, what they really try to aim for for sentence length, is only five to seven words. Doesn't say much for our attention span, does it? So what are we going to do if we've got such a long sentence? Well, it has to be long because it starts in eternity past and goes to eternity future, as you've noticed in the text. What will we do? Well, we're going to take it like Isaiah the prophet said to take it. Line by line, line by line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept. You know what it is. Here a little, there a little. You know that verse, don't you? All right. So, Okay, so here we are, and we're going to just kind of take it phrase by phrase, and see what it's saying to us. The first stanza is really all about our Savior, and He is the theme. It tells us, first of all, in verse 3, that we are blessed in Christ. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, or in the heavenlies, the heavenly realms, in Christ. And so the main thing is to realize in all of the things we have to learn in this first stanza, we're going to see that it's all in Christ. It is in him, through him, by him, and to him. And all the things that we have in Christ, it's all because of him. I told you this was a hymn of praise, didn't I? Well, that's what a hymn is. It talks about him. Now, I know I have you confused, huh? Synonyms and antonyms and prepositions. I think I'm back in school. But realize that these prepositional phrases are so important because it points us always to realize that God has sent his son and our response to God's great favor to us is to respond to his son. And so our blessing is in him and Christ. Now, you notice the way I read this in verse 3. It is, blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings or every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. One time the word, B-L-E-S-S-E-D, is pronounced blessed. The other time the word is pronounced, B-L-E-S-S-E-D, blessed. So which do we use? Whenever we're speaking of the Lord as the great benevolent giving God, we call him the blessed God. But whenever we speak of ourselves as being the receivers or the recipients of his benefits and blessing, we're the blessed people. Isn't that the normal greeting when you talk with people these days? How are you doing? What do they say back? Blessed, right? 
maybe kind of like that, right? Okay, if you didn't know that, this might really help you as you get around and meet people, you know. And they say, how are you doing? The answer should be blessed. Why? Well, because of the blessed God. He's the blessed God. He's the one from whom all blessings flow. We're the recipients of his blessings, so we just say, we're blessed people. Just how blessed are we? And before you're thinking of what kind of car you drive or the boat you'd like to have, our blessings are better than material blessings. Our blessings are spiritual blessings, as verse 3 tells us, and they're located in a very safe place, in heavenly places in Christ. In fact, these heavenly places are mentioned through the book of Hebrews, um, through the book of Ephesians, as I've said, this is really a heavenly theme that we follow. Here we see the heavenlies as a place of blessing. Later, you're going to see the heavenlies as a place of glory. It's even seen as a place of honor, a place of wisdom, and a place of battle. But we're guaranteed the victory. Why? Well, because we're on the heavenly side. We're the blessed of the blessed God. So we're blessed in Christ and what blessing he gives us with eternal, spiritual, heavenly blessings. You get your blessings all right here and right now, they don't last very long. Hmm? You remember when you got the new car and then you pulled into the Walmart parking lot? You came back out and there was a dent in the door. Ah, oh, I thought this was a blessing, now it's a burden. When God gives blessings, he gives the very best. He gave us his son. And in Christ, we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. Not only that, but verse 4 tells us, just as he chose us, catch your prepositional phrase, in him we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Just as we are blessed in Christ, we're also those who are called the chosen, and I want to hasten to say, in Christ. That's the key. You know, sometimes when we speak of being chosen, we're thinking of who is chosen. But that's not the point here. The question is not who, but how. Because God, who is the eternally existent God from eternity past to eternity future, always is, always has been, always will be, it's no wonder that we can say he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. Now, I wasn't living back then. My grandchildren think I was. But I wasn't living back then. But he was. And God the Father looked at God the Son and predetermined, elected that through his elect son, that the only way into his presence, into the presence of God, was to come through his beloved son. That's why he could only choose us one way and only one, and that's in Christ. Just as he chose us in him. Let me just draw that out just a little bit more. Think of it this way. When we were born into this world, we were born in Adam. In Adam, all died. Because Adam sinned, and sin was transferred to the entire whole human race. In Adam, that's where we were, but when we trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior, now we're no longer seen in Adam, but now we're in Christ. 
Once we were in sin, because that's the way we were born, and that's the way we acted, sin by nature and sin by our deeds, but now we're in him. Do we get the contrast here? In Adam or in Christ? That's the only two groups in this whole world. Which group are you in? If you're in Adam, you need to trust Christ as your Savior because God has made a way of salvation through his only begotten Son. Jesus said, I am the way, the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me in John chapter 14, verse 6. Isn't it wonderful? I was talking with a man one time, and he was telling me, he said, you know, I've been studying all the different world religions. I said, well, that's very interesting. I'm sure you found out they're pretty much the same. He looked surprised. He said, yes, as a matter of fact, they are. I said, well, that's the big difference, you know. I waited, and he said, what difference? I thought you'd never ask. The big difference of what God has given as salvation compared to religion because in the religion of man, man is always trying to do something to make himself accepted by God, our works, our giving, or whatever. But God, in his salvation, different than man's religion, he has made a way available to us through a work that has already been done through what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. That's why he says, we're not only blessed in Christ, but we're chosen God has made the way of his choice. It's through his son. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Not by anything you can do or give or what. But only through putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior. And because of him, the door is wide open. It's a, a worldwide universal invitation that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Are you in Christ? Are you still in Adam? Are you in sin? Are you in him? That's the real question. Not who gets saved, but how. And it's only one way. Chosen, verse 4 tells us, in him, in Christ. Now I got some good news for you because in verse 5, not only once you put your trust in Christ as your Savior, but in verse 5 we found out that we're not only blessed in Christ, chosen in Christ, but we're also adopted in Christ. Look at verse 5 because he tells us in verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Predestined. God has a wonderful plan for us. It's called a predetermined plan that once you put your trust in Christ, he has the very best plan for you that will go on forever. And it's a process of adoption. Now, when I say adoption, from a biblical perspective, I'm not talking about adoption as we have in our society where children are adopted by adoptive parents and instead of being a biological child or children of the family, they're adoptive children. It's a wonderful process we have, but that's not what the Bible means when it speaks of adoption. Rather, it's speaking of being seen as part of God's family with all of the privileges and responsibility of being sons and daughters of God. When God 
brings us and we put our trust in Christ and he brings us into his family, he says, I have so much planned for you and it's gonna take eternity to find out all that's involved. And that predetermined plan, what is it exactly? Well, notice it again in verse five, he wants us to be sons to him by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. God has eternity in mind when he says, once you come to my son and put your trust in him, throughout all eternity, he's going to be using us for his purposes and for his glory, and we're going to be enjoying all these blessings forever and ever. Just like we said, being chosen in Christ, not who, but how, predestination or being adopted is not necessarily who, but to what? And God has the very best plan in mind. The great thing in our salvation that we have in verse 6 is pointed out to us when it has to do with our acceptance in Christ. I guess this is probably one of the most difficult things for a person to realize is that God has accepted us in his son. And so we write again in verse 6, accepted in Christ. Notice the last part of verse 6, and then we'll come back to the first part. He says, which he made or which he made us, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. There is nothing more we could ever do to be more loved and more accepted by the Lord than what we have done when we put our trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I like the uh, words of the contemporary Christian songwriter, Michael Card. He says, when it comes to his love for us, he can't love us anymore and he won't love us any less. You are as loved by God as God loved his son. The Lord Jesus said, I have loved you with the same love that the Father has loved me. And that's the kind of love he has for you. He has accepted us just like we are. And he loves us and he's working in our lives just to show us that there is nothing more we could do to be more accepted or more loved by God. In fact, when it tells us in verse 6 that he has made us accepted in his beloved son... I'd like you to know that this expression, being accepted, actually means you are highly favored by God. Uh, I know a lot of us are fathers here and maybe even grandfathers. And usually the family thinks, well, dad has his favorites among the children. But that's the way it is here on earth, isn't it? I know my mom always loved my brother more than me. <laughs> Just kidding. But... When it comes to our perfectly hev perfect heavenly father, I want you to know he has the same love that he has for his son, for you and for you and for you and for you. You are highly favored by God. It's only used one other place, and that's when the angel spoke to Mary, saying you are highly favored. God has a love for us that makes him full of acceptance for us with wide open arms. He loves us that much. And then you'll notice in this first stanza, as we've said, blessed in Christ, chosen in Christ, adopted in Christ, and accepted in Christ, the first part of verse 6 gives us that first stanza reminding us it's all about the Savior, and it is to the praise of the glory of his grace. Stanza number one. Now, you know what you do after you're singing and you finish one verse. What do you do? 
Take a deep breath. We're starting verse 2, all right? Second verse, same as the first. We want to learn what the theme is in each of these verses. The first theme was all about Christ, the Savior. The second theme, to the praise of his glory, starting in verse 7, is really all about our salvation. Our salvation is seen in five parts, starting in verse 7. Verse 7 says, as you'll notice, in him we have redemption through his blood. So the first part of our salvation is he has redeemed us. We had sold ourselves into sin. But God, in his wonderful mercy, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shed his precious blood to redeem us by that blood. And he bought our souls. He has won our hearts from us through that grand redemption. The Bible says we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Not even by following traditions like we're going to rescue ourselves or redeem ourselves. But we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without spot and without blemish. The highest price ever paid for anything in all the world was the price of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed at Calvary. And Jesus paid it all. And that redemption is paid in full there on the cross when he said, it is finished. Redemption was completely purchased, now available, freely as a gift. What would man give in ransom for himself? <laughs> we could give everything we had and still not be able to redeem ourselves. But God, he has redeemed us through the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus. The wages of sin, death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not only are we redeemed, but the second of those five parts of our salvation is that we're forgiven. Verse 7 goes on to say, the forgiveness of sins. I want to tell you that we have been forgiven all of our sins, that's all of our sins past, all of our sins present, and all of our sins future. You know, that was the biggest barrier for me when I wanted to be saved. And finally, I got up the courage to ask the evangelist who was preaching the gospel that night. I said, when Jesus died for my sins, was that just my past sins up to this point? I said, well, that's a good question. He was very kind. He could have said, that's a stupid question. But he said, that's a good question. And I said, well, what's the answer? He said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, when Jesus died on the cross, were your sins past, present, or future? I said, I wasn't even living then. And the light came on. And I realized all my sins were laid on him for my whole life. I tell you, it's a wonderful part of salvation, isn't it? We've been forgiven, forgiven everything. Our brother reminded us early this morning at the uh, Western home uh, of Micah chapter 7, verse 9, when it says that God has cast our sins into the sea. And as our brother reminded us, someone said, and I wrote it in the margin of my Bible, and he put up a sign saying, no fishing. Hmm? We'll never see our sins again. They're gone, gone, gone. We've been forgiven. And when God forgives, he forgets. In fact, he says 
And we heard it this morning again. Your sins and your trespasses and your sins, I will remember no more. I'm so glad to be forgiven. You know, I'm not perfect, but I am forgiven. Right after I got saved, I put a bumper sticker on my car. And it had, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. I was driving down the road. Somebody started blowing the horn. I thought, what is wrong with that guy blowing his horn? And he got up right beside me. I thought we were going to have road rage going on. I rolled down my window to tell him something, and he said, I saw your bumper sticker. I'm a Christian, too. Boy, was I embarrassed. Huh? It's true, though. Christians are not perfect, but we are forgiven. We have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. And in verses 8 and 9, we're abounding in blessings. As we've said, we're blessed. I mean, really blessed. Look what verses 8 and 9 tell us, part of these blessings. Which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. I mean, really, God has given us insight into what he has done in making known, as verse 9 tells us, the mystery of his will. In other words, God's will was for our salvation that we might not only be redeemed and forgiven, but that we might realize the work and program and plan of God given by his wisdom and prudence to us just because he wanted to, according to his good pleasure and his purpose. What else do we have in this salvation? Well, verse 10 tells us, we have been gathered together in God's family. Let me read it to you. Ephesians 1.10 says, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, we're talking of really the summation of all things, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Say, how big is your family? The family of God is so big that earth can't hold us all. Our family reaches all the way up into heaven and right now you're looking a little worried because you realize we're part of the same family and you're going to have to spend eternity with me. Don't worry, I'll be a lot different when I get there. We'll all be perfect and joined into God's great big family and it's a great part of our salvation. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Join together because here's the fifth part of our salvation. Verse 11 tells us we've been given an inheritance. I mean, that's part of the benefits. You have to read the fine print of what it means when God puts you into his family. And verse 11 says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. His will? You have been written into the will of God. And his will says that you have Everything as an inheritance. Whatever belongs to Christ becomes yours. It's not like the man who was getting married to the lady and she told him, whatever is mine is mine, whatever is yours is mine. It's a little different than that. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. In Christ, we are not only heirs, we are joint heirs together with Christ. That everything he receives because we're in him, in his family, we receive. Now, that inheritance is out of this world. I mean, literally, out of this world. We might look like paupers on the streets now, 
but there we're going to be princes reigning with Christ. We come to the last few verses, having finished that second stanza. The first stanza was all about our Savior. The second stanza was all about our salvation. And both of these are all to the praise of his glory. As verse 12 tells us, so that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now, the third stanza very briefly reminds us, starting in verse 13, the order is so important. Let's just look at it phrase by phrase. The first part, in him you also trusted. You know, when you make any purchase or you make any kind of agreement, it's required to have a signature. We're going to compare that signature with faith. When you say, I believe, you're making an agreement. In verse 13, it says, in him you also trusted. That's like putting your name to it, agreeing with God. That's what he wants you to do to come to him. When do you do this? Well, look at the order of verse 13. In him you also trusted, but something happened first. After you heard the word of truth, the word of truth is the gospel, that Jesus died for you, buried, raised again. As he points out, it's the gospel of your salvation. Then he says, in him or in whom also, having believed, that's when you trusted him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Trusting him is like signing on the dotted line. And then sealed, God says, I have a very special seal to approve this agreement. The seal is the Holy Spirit of promise. The word is actually used for an engagement ring in Greek culture today. We also understand it as verse 14 points out, he is the guarantee of our inheritance. He's like the earnest or the down payment. I have a friend, Mr. Paul Payne, who uh, he's with the Lord now, but when he turned 80, he went out and bought a bright red car. This happens, you know, in life. And uh, he brought, bought this bright red sporty car and drove it home to show Myrtle his wife. And when Myrtle saw the car, she said, Paul, have you lost your mind? You take that car back. So he took the car back. And they said, uh, <clears throat> when they saw him, oh, you're, you don't want to keep the car? And he said, no, I don't want to keep the car. And they said, no problem. They tore up the contract. And he said, what about the $300 I gave you as a down payment? And they said, oh, no, that stays with us. You forfeit that. They had to work a deal on the side. Messes up my illustration, but he picked out a purple car instead. Myrtle was very happy. But you understand that if you make a deal and you go back on it, then you have to forfeit your down payment. God is so sure about this salvation that when you trust Christ, you've signed. And he seals the deal, and he gives you the Holy Spirit who will never leave you nor forsake you. You were sealed with that earnest or down payment of the Spirit of God. Do you think God could ever forfeit his own spirit? Never. You are sure for heaven, as secure as you can be, until when? Well, he finishes verse 14 by saying, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. We're signed when we trust Christ. We're sealed by the Spirit of God, and we're going to be delivered one day when the Lord Jesus comes again. That is something to sing about, isn't it? 
Because the third stanza is all about our security in Christ. The Spirit of God dwells in us. And all three of these stanzas, all about the Savior, all about salvation, all about our security in Christ, they're all to the praise of his glory. I trust that the Lord will put a new song in our mouth, even praise unto our God, and we'll sing it from our hearts as we go throughout the day. Now, you come back tonight, you know this is Super Bowl Sunday, isn't it? I got a superlative message for you tonight from the Lord, so you don't want to miss it. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, how thankful we are that when we come before your presence, having read your word and enjoyed many of the benefits we have been offered in Christ, that we are aware that some of us are living in the enjoyment of these great blessings, but others, Lord, they just don't know. They've never trusted Christ as their Savior. Help them to understand, even right now, how much you love them, how much you've done for them in sending your Son to pay for all of our sins at Calvary's cross. We thank you, Father, that this is a sure thing because he not only died, was buried, but he's been raised again from the dead and he lives forever in the power of an endless life. And he's coming back again to receive all of those who trust in him as their personal savior. Lord, we pray for the souls nearest hell that you would save them by your great grace, help them to respond to your kind invitation. And we thank you, Father, for all of the blessings that we have in Christ. Help us to live up and out to the very fullest to what you have done for us. We thank you, Father, for this time together. We commend ourselves to you for your blessing now as we part. In the name that is above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.